All right, let's go 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, the little racks underneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, uh, we would invite you to take that one home. We love God's Word. We believe that He uses it for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. Um, we desperately want you to know God. And so if the Scriptures are what He uses to do that in your heart and life, then like... Just think about it for a second. It's kind of wise to you know, go chasing after him in the Bible. And so if you don't have one, take that one. Or you can come talk to me. I'll find you a fancier one. I don't know. Whatever you want. All right. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, I'm going to try to move quick this morning because, well, this is a long section. All right. So we have made it to the 26th week now of our effort to walk slowly through the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. If you haven't been here, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the Greek city of Corinth. And here's the thing about the, the church in Corinth. They are young. They are really bright. They have all kinds of talented things going on there, and they are very arrogant about it. All right? They got a little bit of a cockiness to them. There's, there's a puffed up chest and a swelled head just a little bit. And because, I mean, that, like, you've been in situations like that. Whenever you got a bunch of young people who are really good at what they do, they tend to get a little, little arrogant about it. And so that's the, the, the situation that Paul is dealing with. But instead of writing them off, instead of uh, getting frustrated with them and walking away, Paul instead engages them. He writes them a series of letter, uh, letters. Uh, this is one of those letters. We're pretty sure it's somewhere in the middle of a longer dialogue. All right? And so Paul has this back and forth conversation with the Corinthian church through letter form. And he's going to go visit them a couple of times even. All right? But he's, he continues to engage and he continues to press in. And you know, like, like some, of his, some of his more uh, less graceful moments, if you want to call it that, some of his less more uh, graceful moments, more Pauline moments, if you want to go that route. There's been a couple of times throughout this letter where Paul has told him in no uncertain terms, you're not as awesome as you think you are. Why don't you take it down a notch? You just let's settle down, take a deep breath, and stop thinking of yourself so highly. And so Paul sometimes takes that cone. He's kind of a punchy-in-the-mouth kind of guy. But there's also some more subtle efforts on Paul's behalf. He's got some, some, some more steady, gentle approaches as well. And so all throughout this letter, Paul has kind of consistently banged the drum that... God's kingdom is intentionally upside down from all the other kingdoms of this world. So the, the Corinthians, they had this idea that what they needed to do was impress everybody outside of the church. And, and Paul's going, yeah, that's the wrong crowd to try to impress. God's kingdom values different things. It builds up and lifts up and exalts different things. It celebrates different things. And so for the Corinthians to spend all their energy chasing after what's seen as impressive to those outside of the kingdom, those, those who are supposed to be operating on a completely different worldview than the kingdom, it, it means that ultimately they're chasing after the wrong stuff. They're wasting their time, they're spending their energy in the wrong ways, and they will ultimately fail. You don't have to look very far to see this different kingdom dynamic spelled out. You really just have to look at the very center of our faith, the, the Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus' bloody, gruesome death on the cross that we celebrated with, with, with the pictures of a broken body and shed blood. Remember that? And his resurrection from the dead, that, that Jesus actually came back to life. And so uh, like, like you don't have to look very far to understand the upside down realities. Like nobody looks at that and goes, yeah, I want more of that in my life. Please give me some more of a king who just dies brutally. 
I want to follow that guy. Please give me some more of the, the one who was tried, beaten, spat upon, and ultimately murdered. That's the kind of leader I want in my life. See, the cross and the resurrection. Paul tells us earlier in this letter that they are seen as a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. What does that mean? It means it completely sweeps the legs out from under anybody who would ever try to uh, use their own merit to saddle up next to, to God. Aren't you impressed with me? No, I'm not impressed with you. Look what, I, well, look what my son did. It also sweeps the legs out from anybody who would ever try to use God to try to gain something else in the world because that's not all that attractive, right? And so entrance into God's kingdom it can only ever occur through hearts that have been changed by God to love him and to love what he loves. Hearts of stone must, must be turned into hearts of flesh or else the kingdom doesn't really make any sense. And God has done it that way by design. And so throughout this letter so far, Paul's addressed a number of kind of main branch topics we've, we've talked about last week. He's, he's addressed the, our, a Christian's new identity in Christ. And he's addressed uh, how we deal with uh, matters of liberty and conscience. And he's also addressed proper, or we could, we could say God-focused ordering of the worship gathering. And he, so he's kind of he's aimed himself at those three main branches of concern. But then last week we introduced the fourth of the main branches. In chapter 15, Paul turns his attention to the Corinthians' understanding of the resurrection. And then it's a bit of a mess down in Corinth. Kind of like everything else, right? Like, like who thought that they would have gotten this one right? Corinth is kind of all kinds of awkward. And so he's got this, this small group of people that are completely denying, I would say, that the resurrection actually happened. Um, and so he, in the first part of chapter 15, uh, Paul reminds them that the gospel message um, it's something that they already claimed to believe. But he makes it clear that, that Jesus' rising from the grave was not only an eternally promised reaction, uh, reality, it was also a demonstrably factual reality. It wasn't just something that God promised in the Old Testament. It was also something that, that they could actually prove if they actually took the effort to prove, right? Meaning, not only did, did God promise such things, but a lot of people were actually standing there when it happened, Right? Paul names several of them for us in their first little part of chapter 15. And then he tells the Corinthians, just go ask them. They were standing around for it. They were there. It's not some wishful thinking. Literally hundreds of people were eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus. Just go talk to them. I mean, I know you got to get on a boat and travel from Corinth to Jerusalem. It's a little bit of a trek, but I mean, if you're up for it, they're there. Go talk to them. But while the promise of the resurrection... And the historicity of the resurrection are both incredibly important things to pay attention to. Events actually have to like, like affect something in order to be noteworthy, right? If, if an event is going to actually change some things about the way we think and live and operate in the world, it maybe actually has to accomplish something. Otherwise, it's just this thing that kind of happened that one time. A really neat parlor trick for sure, but like... Jesus rose from the dead. Awesome. Right. Just give him some applause and move on with your life. And so 
In order for an event to be noteworthy, it's actually got to affect some things. And so Paul is going to take the next step in his logic here, and he's going to begin digging into the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. So, and so we're going to start in verse 12 this morning. If you got it, with, read along with me. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Well, that's an interesting question. Like, if Christ is proclaimed as raised, then why are some of you saying that he ain't? So, while there may have been a handful in Corinth that were completely denying the resurrection of Jesus, that's not actually the biggest group of people with the biggest problem down in Corinth. Apparently, Paul has also got a group that believes that, well, Jesus did rise from the dead. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we will. Right? If, I mean, great, Jesus did it that one time, but that doesn't mean that everybody will. That's the, that's the group that he's now dealing with. Sure, Jesus did that special thing that one time, but I mean, I mean, why not? Jesus is God. He can do whatever he wants. Sure, Jesus can rise from the dead. Awesome. But that's not really a general thing for everybody else. Furthermore, why would I even want to? And this is a direct inheritance of the Greek culture that the Corinthians were living in. A direct inheritance. Uh, Remember, as a city, Corinth was always kind of living in Athens' shadow. They wanted to be like Big Brother Athens. They wanted to be known for their philosophy. They wanted to be known for their rhetoric and orality. And so in, in the Greek world, during this time in history, Platonism was gradually shifting into Neoplatonism. And for those of you who took that one class in, for philosophy in college, right, you probably know what those two things are, right? Platonism and Neoplatonism? You, anybody want to explain them to me? No? Okay, good. Right, so, <laughs> so, the abstract, Platonism was, Platonism was kind of this idea that there's this thing out there that's not really a thing. It's the abstract world, right? And, but that's happening several hundred years before Jesus steps onto the scene and before Paul is writing this letter. Slowly over time in the Greek thinking world, in the oration world, that, that abstract idea shifted slowly but surely into a, a duality between the material and the immaterial. There are these things that are material and they're kind of burdened with sin and they're kind of burdened with problems and they're kind of burdened with life. But then you have the immaterial and that's where we really want to be. And so if I could just get away from the material side of me, if I could just get free of that finally and only be the immaterial spiritual self, then I'd finally be living. That was the thought. This is also when we see the emergence of the Gnostics, if you're familiar with who those guys are. It was quite vogue in the city of Corinth during this time period to believe that you needed to escape your material body in order to finally experience the freedom of a purely spiritual reality. So the Christian doctrine of the bodily resurrection, that didn't come from Greek thought. That was inherited from Jewish thought and worldview. It was seen as reprehensible to someone who thought of themselves as an enlightened Greek. So you got a bunch of people in Corinth who, well, they can't deny that Jesus rose from the dead. It was taught to them. They believed it. Sure, absolutely. God can do whatever he wants. But, I mean, I don't want to. Why would I ever want such a thing for myself? That sounds like a step backwards for me. I want to be free from my body. But there are several problems with that logic. 
Namely, God created our bodies. <laughs> They're his ideas. Anybody want to tell him that he did a bad job? Our, our bodies are certainly broken and burdened by sin. Absolutely. That's clear and obvious. But, but bodies have existed longer than sin has. They come before the introduction of sin in the creation story. There's a pre-fall reality to our bodies, and there will also be a post-fall, post-redemption reality to our bodies, a sinless, glorified reality. But the failure of the logic doesn't stop there because Paul addresses another failure in verse 13. He says this, But if there's no resurrection of the dead... And not even Christ has been raised. So, even though this group didn't believe in or even want a bodily resurrection for themselves, they still saw it as somehow logically feasible for Jesus to do it. Um, they were willing to allow that it happened that one time. They could carve that out for themselves, but I'm sure it was even really special and important, I guess. But Paul says that carving out that one special time that Jesus did it doesn't actually make any sense. Either it's a good thing or it's not a good thing. If the goal really is to escape the material body, then Jesus is a moron. Like he had his chance and he blew it. He was presented the opportunity to finally escape that, that, that burdened physical self and he put it back on. What was he doing? Paul tells them that to deny the hope of a bodily resurrection for ourselves is to ultimately argue that Jesus himself did not rise bodily. Forget about whether or not he should have. He can't. He says you can't deny that the material body is, is completely void of goodness and then just turn around and say, oh, but it's cool for Jesus, I guess. doesn't make sense. I mean, Jesus is smart, but I just guess he doesn't want as full of, a, of awesome reality as I want for myself. But the Bible paints the picture that our resurrected, glorified bodies will be a final realization of what bodies were actually created to be. That we need to escape sin and the effects of sin, not the body. That we will finally and forever return to the same reality that God once upon a time looked at after he created it and said, that's very good. The resurrection of our material bodies, it's not a step backwards. It's something to long for and celebrate and something that God will rightly and forever receive worship because of. But we can't stop there. There are a couple of other reasons that the material versus immaterial logic is faulty. Look at verse 14. Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So in verse 15, Paul says that if Christ didn't really rise from the dead, then all of us who have been preaching that he has, we're in a lot of trouble. Because we've been telling lies about Jesus. We've been misrepresenting who God is. That's a giant problem, right? Um, but while that's a really interesting and terrifying thing to have been accused of, Paul just kind of flies right past it to focus on um, 
something else. He kind of sandwiches it between two different times of telling about something. He sandwiches it between two different times of, of telling us something that seems to be a more important problem to him. Um, in both verse 14 and verse 17, uh, he says that if the resurrection didn't really happen, your faith, and by faith here, he means your entire system of belief, Right? He says that, that if, those, if the resurrection didn't really happen, then your entire system of belief, your faith, is in vain and futile. In other words, it is wasted and pointless. Why? Well, he answers the question for us. Because you're still dead in your sins. This is a massive, absolutely massive doctrinal reality that in my experience most people have never bothered to actually think through how do we know that jesus's death on the cross was effectual for us how do we know that jesus's death on the cross actually accomplished something to atone for our sin in another place in Paul's writings, in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, he says that Jesus was delivered for our trespasses and, listen, raised for our justification. Raised for our justification, meaning it is by his victory over the punishment of sin, death. It is by his victory over the punishment for sin that we are declared righteous. If Jesus stayed dead the debt wouldn't be fully paid. If Jesus stayed dead, there would still be division between us and God. If Jesus stayed dead, then there's no hope for victory over our sin because even Jesus couldn't beat it. If Jesus really, truly stayed dead, then we are no better off, spiritually speaking, than those who reject Christ altogether. We have placed our hope in one who cannot help us. So Paul says, if Christ didn't really rise from the dead, your faith is wasted and pointless. It's vain and futile. Which Paul carries to the next logical conclusion in verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says that those who have died, and in Paul's writings he typically refers to them as having fallen asleep. He doesn't do that because it's cute. He doesn't do that to soften the blow. He does that to emphasize its temporariness. It's temporariness. Paul says that if Christ didn't really rise from the dead with the promise of our future resurrections to go along with it, then those dead people haven't merely fallen asleep. No, they have perished. They're lost forever. Forever. I don't know if you've noticed this about the world that we're living in right now, but we're dealing with more funerals today than we normally would. Uh, has anybody caught the news of that? Sit in the pastor's seat. You get to play a role in a lot of different types of funerals and memorial services and things like that. Listen, you get to watch some people. There is a stark contrast between those who have a hope of a resurrection and those who don't. They are worlds apart. They're not even on the same planet. A truly Christian funeral, it hits different. 
entirely different. There's a celebration and an expectation buried just beneath the pain and the sorrow. Paul says, hey, you want to play games with the resurrection, with the doctrine of resurrection? You're going to lose a lot more than you think you're going to lose. We're not dealing with second-tier things here. We're not dealing with some lighter shades of theological ideas that could be true and might be true, kind of maybe hope they are true, but whatever. He says, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, we have no hope. And we ought to be pitied. Why? Because we've wasted our 80 years. We've wasted our 80 years. Paul says if the bodily resurrection is not a reality, then we will have spent our days chasing after something that has no future. All the suffering for the sake of Christ, every martyr that has been slain for the cause of the gospel, every choice you have ever made to lay down your liberties and to lay down your freedoms for the cause of loving your brother, they will be rightly seen at the end of time as the most foolish decision that you have ever made. It will be the greatest bait and switch in the history of the world. Deception we were dumb enough to buy into. If you're here this morning and you're on the fence about whether or not you should follow Jesus, hear the Apostle Paul as clearly as he can be heard. The resurrection of Jesus is the fulcrum. It is the fulcrum. Jesus is either God in the flesh or he is the greatest con man in history. There is no in-between. If Jesus did really rise from the dead, then he is owed, rightly owed, the entirety of your attention and your adoration. But if he didn't, just go buy a jet ski or something. Sounds a lot more fun. You're wasting your time here. If all you got is your 80 years on this planet, then you go do you. You have a great time. Don't you dare waste a moment in here. But if Jesus really did what his followers claim he did, if he really did defeat sin and death itself, then your 80 years are nothing. They're nothing in light of eternity. Less than nothing. You'd be a whole lot wiser to invest yourself in a kingdom that moth and rust can never destroy and thieves can never break in and steal. Paul knows where he lands on that question. What about you? There, there really is no in-between. Either Jesus is exactly who he says he is and done exactly what he's done, or Jesus shouldn't be trusted at all. And this is the reason. I told you last week why I think the Corinthians' failure to understand the resurrection affected how they failed in all of those other categories they struggled with in the letter. Like it's, it's really easy to get wrapped up in trying to use the church to make a name for yourself when you think that the prize at the end of the game is making a name for yourself. But that's not the prize. 
It's really easy to throw a fit over getting to exercise your freedom to eat pagan idol meat when you think that your enjoyment of something today is more important than the long-term growth of your brother. They, They got the finish line wrong. And because they got the finish line wrong, it skewed everything else they were aiming at and all the rules they were playing by. But if you get the finish line right... It affects every moment of the game. If Jesus really defeated death itself, then that means that there's a longer game to be played here. And the smart ones in the room, they'll never settle for temporary victories that try to that don't impress the ones that aren't paying attention, right? Like like they, they won't settle for the things that the ones who don't know the rules and how the game works are distracted by. Look at verse 20. It says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Let's call time out there. Uh, Jesus' resurrection is called the first fruits of our own here. So what are, what are the first fruits? Well, it's literally the first fruits to come out of a harvest. See how that works? Brilliant naming. Right? It's the first taste of what would have been collected uh, during harvest time, even if not everything is all the way ripe yet and ready to go. You got that first little taste of, ah, the first tomato came off the vine, that kind of deal. That's the the first fruits. Paul's saying here that Jesus is our first little taste of what is to come for us. We're not ripe and ready for the picking yet, but our day will eventually get here. In a lot of ways, our resurrection bodies will be similar to Jesus's. How exactly? I don't know. You know? I don't know. We haven't gotten there yet. We're not given a whole lot of details about what that looks like. Um, when, when we look at the resurrected Jesus, we, we, we don't know what about what was going on in the gospel accounts and early on in the book of Acts. We don't know what, what ways our glorified bodies will look like his and what ways maybe he was unique because he's also divine. I, I don't know, but here's what I do know. Instead of speculating about things that we'd like to see or like to experience, our call is to look at Jesus' glorified body and trust that you know, he's going to make us whatever he wants to like himself. Like That's the answer. Different than what we are now, and we're going to dig into that a lot more next week. Different than what we are now, but also not so different. I don't know. Paul's going to cover a lot of that in more detail in the next little segment that we'll look at next week. But right now, he just kind of skirts past it to talk about something that I think he sees as a bigger thing. Look at verse 21 again. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. A couple years ago when we we studied Romans chapter 5 together, we We covered this same idea, but Paul uses that space in Romans to kind of expand it out a lot more. Theologians call it the federal headship, which is a fun little term. Uh, Federal headship. Adam, standing as our representative for all of humanity, failed under the weight of sin. 
And because he failed, those coming after him descended from his line. We inherit both his propensity towards sin and the good and right punishment for that sin, death. What if I don't want Adam to represent me? I didn't vote for Adam. Hashtag not my federal head. But the reality is that neither you nor I would have ever done any better. Not even close. I would have failed under the weight of potential sin as quickly as he did, maybe faster. Probably faster, I know me. Now see, what we need, what we need is a better team captain. We need a better team captain. Paul says that one man, by one man came death, but with the new man, Jesus, came resurrection from the dead. So all who are made alive are moved from team Adam to team Jesus. We are given a new representative. And so spiritually speaking, that happens by regeneration and justification. Bodily speaking, it means future resurrected bodies dwelling forever with our team captain, Jesus. Paul's on team Jesus. How about you? He wants you to be. Listen, if you've never placed your trust in Jesus alone for salvation, today's a really good day to do something about that. You don't have to wait for the end of a sermon. Do it now. Do it now. Let it be helpful to you. We can talk about it after I'm done. Look at verse 23. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected, or he is accepted, who put all things in subjection under him. Verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. All right, I'll go ahead and fess up. I think Paul could have benefited from like an editor here. <laughs> Fully believe. 100% believe in the full and final inerrancy of Scripture, and I trust that God's going to use this text and however God wants to use this text. It may be that he wants people to be confused by this. I don't know. There are parenthetical statements inside of parenthetical statements here. All right, So it's easy to get confused. So what's Paul saying? That Jesus has some work to do before we get to cash in on the fruit of being raised. There's some work that Jesus has got on his plate before that day comes. Part of the job that the Father has assigned to the Son is to bring all things in subjection, in rulership under himself. Jesus will rule and reign over all of creation, all things. And that includes, especially includes, everyone and everything that currently postures itself against him. All of his enemies will definitely put, be, be put in subjection under him. And so this is one of the reasons that Jesus has not come back yet. There's more work to do. Don't worry, though. Jesus is really good at his job. He's got it. He'll get there. But then you also have this really weird statement in verse 27. Probably turned most of you inside out. Paul says that the only thing that won't be put in subjection to the reign of Jesus will be the one who assigned him the task, the Father. 
Jesus will rule and reign over everything except the Father. And then in verse 28, Paul says that the entire point of this task assigned to Jesus is to turn around as soon as he's finished and hand it back to Dad. Here you go. I did it for you. And this is definitely a theological reality that I'm sure many of you have never actually thought through. Right? Like, how, how exactly does the Trinity work? Think we can answer that today? You got time to knock that out? Let me give you the really fast Stephen Woodard super condensed version then. While the Bible teaches that there is perfect equality within the value, power, and honor owed to each person of the Godhead, the Bible does not teach a uniformity of function. Or we could say a uniformity of work among each person of the Godhead. And, and as, a, as a general rule, if you just, no matter where we're looking in redemptive history, the Father ordains, the Son accomplishes, then the Spirit applies and resides. That's, that's the framework. We can, we can spend some time tinkering with that, but that's the framework. The Father ordains, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies and resides. Make sense? No? All right, buy me a cup of coffee this week. I'll give you the hour-long version. <laughs> Moving on, because as fun as that topic is, it's not even the, the dynamite verse in this text. Uh, it's actually, the next verse will make that section look like child's play. Look at verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And go. <laughs> That's a fun couple of sentences. What in the world is Paul talking about? Um, to be honest, there's, there's a lot of debate, right? Um, but I think we can get a clue. This is my opinion. I think we can get a clue by looking at what Paul says next. Look at verse 30 real quick. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised. Let's call time out there. All right. So Paul is not exactly somebody who's living in comfortable, easy life right now, right? Um, like he's, Paul's made a lot of enemies. I don't know if you've noticed this as you read that throughout the book of Acts and his, his writings. Uh, in fact, pretty much everywhere Paul goes, Paul is either on the run from somebody who's about to arrest him or kill him. Like, that's pretty much Paul's lifestyle the back several years of his life. And so rolling into town with nothing more than a major theological debate to deal with is kind of a light day for Paul. Right? He's always under physical hardship and, 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 and danger. And so case in point, he fought with something he calls beasts here in Ephesus. It's not real beasts. I think he's talking about metaphorically about some people who were not so nice in Ephesus. Right? He calls them beasts here. But while Paul dealt with that on a regular basis, it's not like all the other Christians out there were just walking that easy life either. They were dealing with a lot of junk. Everybody's kind of facing persecution of some sort in those days. I mean, just like many places around the world today, there were, there were a lot of people in the early church who were immediately met with challenges and persecution as soon as they publicly declared to follow Christ. Like, put yourself in the mindset of, of, of some people that we would call brothers and sisters in faraway places, you know, 
picture tinfoil window or closed country here, closed country there. Like, like we, we have people in our faith family who as soon as the word gets out, their life is in real danger. Right? And I think that's where this obscure line about being baptized on behalf of the dead comes into play in verse 29. I think that's what's going on here. This, this practice is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. It seems to be incredibly unique to Corinth. But a lot of people think that folks in Corinth were being baptized on behalf of people who had made public professions of faith, but didn't make it all the way to being able to be dunked in some water. That they got caught somewhere in between and were killed. And if that's true, and this was a kind of a pastoral thing that was going on either as a way of bringing comfort to those that they left behind, those who were close to the deceased person, or, or somehow because they thought baptism was a necessary part of someone's salvation, and so they were trying to finalize that last piece, I guess, on their behalf. They weren't there, so we'll do it for them kind of deal. And if you're familiar with the teachings of the Mormon church at all, and they've taken verse 29, and they've run all the way to the end zone with it. Well, this is a key tenet of what I would call their false doctrine. An important question emerged pretty early on in the Mormon church. Hey, how does someone, how is someone saved if they lived before the Mormon church was established? So Mormons believe that you have to be a part of the Mormon church, baptized in the Mormon church in order to actually be saved. And so they had to figure out that theological problem. And so the answer that John Smith came up with, it's how early on this, this was presented in their doctrine. The answer that John Smith came up with is, well, what we need to do is track down their genealogy and then we'll get a righteous person to be baptized in their place. And they point to this verse as their argument for that doctrine couple of gigantic problems with that logic. For starters, Paul doesn't command the practice here. He just kind of mentions that it's happening. Those are different things. Those are different things. Um, talking or Taking something that's only barely mentioned one time in the Bible without that mention, even referencing whether it was good or bad, and then building your entire system of atonement on that one thing, it's kind of like a terrible idea. Just don't do that. And so, it's also standard operating procedure for most cults, but I'll let you connect the dots on that one. There's a second problem on the table, though, with this logic. Paul is bringing this subject up to a group of people who believe that the resurrection of the dead is not a real thing. He hadn't changed audiences. And so he, he asks the question, why, why are you wasting your time dunking people as a sign of being buried and raised again if you don't actually believe that they're going to be raised to anything? They misunderstand what baptism is. Hey, you know that part where we bring them back up out of the water? That's pointing to something. It's a picture of something incredibly important to us. The Bible doesn't portray baptism as some sort of ritual for entrance into the church. It is a picture of being united with Jesus in his death and being raised with Jesus in his resurrection. That's what baptism is. It is a public testimony of our trust that his death and his resurrection are sufficient for us too. And so, if the Corinthians really want to be consistent with their stated theology, what they need to do is hold people under until the bubbles stop. That'll be painting the picture they want to send. And so back to the Mormon church for a second. The, the idea that they would take verse 29 here and turn it into a works-based pathway for non-Mormons to be saved in the Mormon church, it's literally the exact opposite of what Paul's even bringing the subject up for. 
You couldn't turn that verse more inside out. Paul doesn't celebrate it or rebuke it. Instead, he points out that the practice doesn't make any sense at all if you actually believe Christian theology. It's not necessary for orthodoxy either. But if you've already shucked orthodoxy, it, doesn't, it makes less sense now. So don't do it. It's just kind of dumb. Just weird. Look at the second half of verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So Paul quotes two different sources here, the, the eat and drink for tomorrow we die line. That, that's been picked up by all sorts of folks for you know, all kind of proof-texted terrible actions. But it actually comes from Isaiah 22, verse 13. Uh, uh, but here's what's crazy about Isaiah 22. It's an oracle about the fading light of Jerusalem because of her debauchery and self-indulgence. Like Isaiah uses it in a negative context. Anytime we use it in a, in a positive context, missing the point. So Paul quotes Isaiah, but then there's, there's this next line. It says, bad company ruins good morals. It's taken from a Greek comedy written a couple hundred years before this letter, and there's some debate over whether it was Euripides or Menander, or if you're familiar with those guys. But in either case, what's likely going on is this has become a proverb by the time that Paul is writing this letter. It's just kind of this thing that's always on the lips of people. Even if they don't know the, the source that it came from, it's just this thing that people in that culture say. In fact, you've likely heard that line because it was used in a proverbial way at some point, right? Bad company ruins good morals. I'm sure one of our founding fathers said it one time or something. And so both lines, scriptural and colloquial, both lines, Paul used them to, to point out that what you surround yourself with what you devote yourself to consuming, it's going to directly affect who you are and what you believe. Those, those things have an effect on you. You, you. you might think you're playing games. You might think you're able to keep all the plates spinning under your own power, but you vastly underestimate their influence over you. They will be your downfall. And to use Paul's own picture here, he says you're like a drunk man who thinks he's in control when they're very clearly not. You think you've got it handled. You think you can walk down that straight pathway. You think you can get in the car and drive, but you have no idea. So Paul tells the, the Corinthians, wake up from your drunken stupor. Let's go. Sober up. Well, this... Young church was busy patting themselves on the back, boasting of their superior knowledge. Paul points out that they don't actually understand what they're talking about. Another one of those less nice moments. One of those little harsher moments of Paul's rebuke here. But did they earn that? Yeah, I think they did. they did. They were dismissing or outright rejecting core pieces of the gospel and the resurrection. And as such, man, they were cutting their own legs right out from under them. And so Paul here, he clearly wants a deep and a 
biting good for them. And so he lays it on thick, right? Instead of, instead of deserving applause, what they deserved was shame. And I get it. That's a pretty low point to kind of leave a sermon for a week. I'm aware of that. Um, but maybe it can serve as a warning for us. At least I hope it can. I've told you all a few times throughout the course of this series now that the pathway from healthy church to Corinthian train wreck is not that far of a walk. You change the wrong couple of things and shift even by a degree the wrong couple of things and you'll end up getting there before we're even paying attention to it. Listen, man, in some ways we're young. In some ways, we're talented. In some ways, we're bright. And we're probably, in more ways than we are aware, uh, we probably have the ability to be pretty arrogant, too. Or is that just me? Yeah, it's probably just me. So whether we think we're in a better place than Corinth or not, I think that the calling here is to hear Paul's words today clearly and use them to guard our own hearts. Because apparently it's entirely possible to be so convinced that we've got things figured out, even to the point where everybody outside of us wants to be us. It's entirely possible to be convinced that we've got everything figured out. I believe we're knocking it out of the park and to not really have any clue. All the while undermining the gospel that we claim to believe and preach. So that's how we can respond to God's word this morning. We, we ask God to humble us and to, listen, keep us humble. I don't want to end up where Corinth ended up. I want to guard ourselves from that. So if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, our response is to repent of sin and to, to lean into what God reveals about himself in this text. And man, this week, I think he's showing us that, that what he is doing in and through the resurrection is much, hear me, much bigger than what we often pay attention to on the surface. There's tentacles that go down into everything, and we need to chase those out. And if we don't chase those out, we don't rightly understand some things. The implication of the resurrection are just as big as the eternal promise and its historicity. And it keeps going. So if we rush past those implications, we will completely misunderstand some of the most important things that God is working for our good. We should open our eyes. We can use Paul's word, sober up. Wake up from our drunken stupor. What if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? How can, how can you respond to God's word? You do that by meeting Jesus. We say it every week, but it's true every week. The Bible teaches that all people by default are separated from God because of our sin. We are uh, separated because of our sin. We are owed the righteous and fair, the just punishment for that sin. The Bible calls it death. The Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love. That even when we're dead in our trespasses and sin, God makes us alive through Christ by his grace. God sent his son, Jesus. The eternal Son of God, he put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor me are able to live. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute to make full and final payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead, right? As a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. The check has cleared. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that this morning. Man, I'd love to be helpful to you. I'll be down there if you want to talk to somebody about it. You don't need me, but man, I'd love to be helpful.
But whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond this morning, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. Let's all respond together. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for a resurrection that we, I'll confess, we have not made full sense of. Help us hold it as valuable. Help us hold it as our only hope. Would you continue to give us understanding? Help us see how it affects everything here and everything outside of here. That will we spend our lives chasing after things that will still be important 10,000 years from now. Rather than the things that we'll forget about 10 months from now. Help us be a church that structures ourselves in a way that points people to not only Jesus' death, but resurrection life. Father, for those here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known today? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you draw people to your kingdom this morning for your glory? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.